You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 72. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. On today's show, Paul and I talk about tech on a budget. That's right. You don't have to break the bank to have tech on your project or to improve your workflows. There's also a bonus episode for this one for members, so check that out. Let's get to it. All right, welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 72. As I said in the introduction, how's it going, Paul? Pretty good, Chris. How you doing? Pretty good, pretty good. Did you break all your, your high-tech Christmas presents yet? <laughs> all of them, <laughs> every last one. I put them all on a drone and uh, and crashed it. Nice, nice. You know, I, I will say, as as people who are fans of technology and listening to this show, that just reminds me, if for anybody that's seen the Netflix series Black Mirror out there, it is kind of an amazing high-tech sort of show, but if you've already watched season three like we have, uh, that came out, I think, in early January or something like that, or late December. If you've already watched that and you want a little bit more and you have an Amazon Prime account, go check out Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams. That's what it's called. If you just search Electric Dreams, that's what it's called. It's pretty much the same thing. I, I don't think it's quite as good as Black Mirror, but it's still kind of a high-tech deal. And the reason I'm mentioning this is because... Something that's always on the minds of tech enthusiasts is uh, is where drones are going with our world and what that's going to look like. We've had lots of discussions on the show. In fact, we had a show a long time ago that I'll try to find and put in the show notes talking about the ethics of using drones in certain areas. And there's a lot of considerations there as well. But one of the episodes in that Electric Dreams show was called the AutoFAC, Auto and then FAC. And it's basically automatic factory. And it was this factory built uh, in presumably our time frame with uh, like to, like present day. And it was controlled by an AI that would basically seek out its own sources for materials, take in orders from customers, find those raw materials, mine those raw materials, process those raw materials, make things and send them out by drone. Well... Not to get too far into it, because this is right in the beginning, but the autofact basically determines that humans are unnecessary for this process and destroys the planet. And then there's a few humans left that are basically trying to fight the autofact like 20 years later, and then some weird twists and turns happen. But this whole time, it's like seeking out sources, and there's just like fleets of drones flying back and forth all over the place, delivering packages to no one. <laughs> so it's kind of like the uh, the Terminator meets Wall-E. Right. It totally is. <laughs> It's as the, it's as if Skynet was actually Amazon, <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> which is not too far from the truth. Speaking of Amazon, that's <laughs> one of the first things on our list here. So as I mentioned in the intro, we're going to talk about budget technology on today's show. And because we talk about a lot of stuff that may or may not cost a lot of money. And again, budget really depends on how you look at it. Uh, it might not necessarily be something cheap, but maybe it's something that actually saves you a lot of money, therefore makes it somewhat budget. I mean, it could be looked at in a number of ways, but I think most of the things we're going on for here is basically things that are less expensive, but still allows you to maintain high levels of efficiency and productivity. So I think with the first thing we have on here is Amazon tablets. Paul, do you have any uh, experience with Amazon tablets? Yeah, I do. So on uh, Cyber Monday, there was a Cyber Monday deal where they had the Amazon Fire Tablet 7-inch for sale for 30 bucks. That's the uh, the sponsored version. So their advertisement's on the lock screen. And uh, at 30 bucks, I figured, you know, I might as well just give this one a shot, you know, dog food it for a little bit, test it out, see what happens. Uh, get myself, dip my toes into the Android waters. I, you know, like you, I'm mostly on iOS when it comes to my, my portable devices. And so I figured it was a good chance to actually, with very low cost, uh, get into Android for a bit. Normally the price on these seven inch ones is, um, $50, you know, so $20 rebate. Mm -hmm. Again, you can, to get rid of the ads, you can pay a little extra, 
Uh, you can get different memory capacities. I got the lowest one, which is eight gigabytes. But unlike the iPads that uh, that we've been using, you and I mostly, um, these have an SD card slot, a micro SD card oh, slot, yeah. so we can expand the, the storage space. Um, you know, and I've been using it. It's basically, you know, it's a little on the slow side, uh, but it's totally functional. The camera's nothing to, to write home about. Amazon's fire line of everything is really made for, for consumption of video streams, audio streams, and so on. And so there are apps for, you know, I've watched games on ESPN and on Fox on it, and it works really well for that sort of thing, you know, handheld TV set, basically. Uh, right. But I've also used it a little bit for reading. It syncs in with whatever Kindle books I have. And what I've started using it for, what I really, uh, what I really enjoy it with, actually, is for Dropbox. So I just... Hmm throw PDFs up into Dropbox and I don't have um, I don't have an iPad anymore. I, I gave up my iPad mini one a couple years <laughs> ago. <laughs> We're still using it in the house. My wife uses it for reading, but I didn't have anything else. And so, you know, reading PDFs on a Kindle is a, a, a total pain. doesn't work very well. I don't yeah. particularly like reading on my laptop. Reading on my phone, my eyes are getting to the age that uh, that, that gets increasingly difficult. So, you know, trying to read these PDFs, just loading whatever I'm reading currently onto Dropbox so that I can access it on the Fire tablet has been pretty good. Now, the Fire tablets, again, they come mm-hmm. in different sizes. I got the lowest end one, the uh, the seven inch one. There's eight inches and then they're fancier ones that go up in price from there. But it seems to me that if you have a project and you have to deploy, you know, iPads so that your crew can have access to reference material, you know, rather than spend three hundred plus dollars for each iPad, you might want to spend thirty or fifty dollars for uh, for these seven inch Amazon Fire tablets. Uh, again, you know, thirty bucks. I mean, I'll be upset when I drop it and break it, but I'm not going to be <laughs> <laughs> nearly as upset as I would be if I dropped and broke an iPad. Uh, yeah. So anyhow, in terms of the sprightliness of it and the utility of it, it's pretty comparable to my first generation iPad mini that I used to have. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it's entirely adequate for everything I've thrown at it. And because it is running an Android, um, I've installed a better web browser on it. There's instructions for installing Firefox on it. So I can use Firefox instead of Amazon Silk browser, which is pretty cruddy. Oh, yeah. and <laughs> I've also installed Google Play and uh, and have then been explore, exploring some of the Google Play apps that are available. And not today, I'm not quite ready yet, but there have been a few archaeology-related programs that I've downloaded mm. and, uh, and have started playing with on this that are available for Google Play that aren't available on iOS. So hopefully in a future episode, we'll be able to discuss a little bit... Uh, the other side of the coin in terms of mobile operating systems versus what we've been doing so far. Nice. So what other kind of compromises are you making with this uh, cheap of an I- cheap of a device? You know, usually it's in hardware. I mean, you mentioned a lot of the software stuff, but how is the case on it? How worried are you of dropping it actually? And also, do they even make like rugged cases for these things? Because in my experience, a rugged case for a, for even an iPad mini, a good one is a hundred dollars, which is like twice the cost of <laughs> that tablet. So, so do, do you, have you looked at cases for, for in case they drop it or something? I haven't looked at cases. I know that they, they sell Amazon sells a version of the same tablet with a rubberized case for, uh, for kids in particular. 
And, mm-hmm. you know, then there are any of a number of other kind of book style cases, you know, something you can prop up if you want to use it for watching uh, movies, for example. But it's got a, uh, it's, it's a little on the heavy side. It's a little bit on the thick side. The back is, yeah, it's plastic, but it's got a decent tooth to the plastic. So I don't feel like it's going to slip out of my hands and break. I'm not afraid of dropping it. Um, it just doesn't feel like it's going to slip out of my hands. Yeah. And again, if it does, I'm not out a whole lot of money. I, again, it's a shame. I don't want to waste things. But um, but it's been pretty usable for everything that I've thrown at it, which is admittedly very low end. But, uh, you know, it's it's been a good tool. Actually, I, here's here's something I did do with it that I can't do on iOS is uh, I downloaded a Wi-Fi scanner. And I've used good hardware dedicated Wi-Fi scanners in the past mm-hmm. in my capacity here at the school when we've had Wi-Fi issues. Um, it's commonly a problem in a dense urban environment like New York that you know you have neighbors that have whatever thing that's blasting and ruining your wi-fi next door um so you know if we look on if we open up our mac and we look on the uh, the wi-fi widget in the menu bar you can see dozens to sometimes over a hundred neighbors wi-fi networks anyhow so <laughs> i downloaded uh this little wi-fi scanner uh called wi-fi analyzer onto the the tablet because we started having really bad Wi-Fi in my apartment. And what I found out, interestingly enough, was that uh, that a neighbor had gotten a new router and they put it onto the, the same channel that we were on. And so in a couple spots in the apartment, which happened to be where my kids' bedrooms are, <clears throat> their Wi-Fi started stinking really badly. Uh, so mm. I looked at that, and with the analyzer, I walked around the apartment for a little bit and uh, and found then that I could switch from channel 6, which I had been using, down to channel 1, uh, and that improved it for, for everybody in the family. Uh, the reason why... Th- that is something I can do on this uh, on the tablet on the Fire tablet that I can't do on my iPhone or any other iOS device is because of the access that Apple doesn't give developers directly to the hardware. So this requires being able to talk directly to the uh, the Wi-Fi card, and I can do it both in 2.4 gigahertz and 5 gigahertz channels. On my phone, I can tell how strong the signal I'm connected to is on my iOS phone, mm-hmm. but I can't see everything else that's blasting around. On the uh, on the Fire tablet, I can, and that helped me get to the bottom of it pretty quickly. Now, admittedly, I could have brought equipment from work and used my laptop and uh, and sophisticated uh, Wi-Fi analyzers to take a much better look and also see things, noise sources that aren't even Wi-Fi but just happen to be in that 2.4 gigahertz spectrum. Yeah. But um, but I didn't have to. I, I was able to solve the problem pretty quickly with this thing. So, you know, again, it's a, it's a useful, inexpensive toy. Yeah, it certainly is. Um, but you know what? I mean, for the price, and, and we're going to talk about some other tablets here real quick uh, in a minute, but for the price, I mean, even if you don't get it on sale, you say the regular price is like $50 or something. I mean, even if you didn't have a case on it at all out in the field and you just dropped it in a mud puddle or something and it was totally ruined, if you're just using it for like reference material, maybe some other stuff, shoot, you could have like a pile of them in the back of the truck and just grab another one <laughs> for that cost, you know? Yeah. And even if you're not doing it for reference material, but if you have the uh, the application installers for, for an sure. Android app, yeah. you can sideload it onto these. So if you have an app that's been designed for Android, you can put it on that pretty easily. Nice. So, you know, it might be more useful 
and again, we'll, I'll explore this mm-hmm. a little more so that I can say something a little more intelligently to, to our listeners uh, as we go down the mm-hmm. line here. But, uh, but I think that uh, this is definitely something worth exploring if you're looking at deploying tablets in the field and just can't bring yourself to bite the bullet for, for better, higher-end tablets. Right. Well, along the line from a $50 Amazon Fire tablet to a brand new uh, Android or Apple tablet and we mean ipad or samsung you know one of the one of the higher end kinds uh there is stuff still in the middle there where you're still getting those tablets and one of the places we'll just put links in the show notes for this so you can go check it out because there's always different things on there but two places you can find used and refurbished tablets uh from apple you can look at just their uh their refurbished section on their um on their on their website just go go to apple.com we'll have a link for it and you can look for refurbished tablets. They don't sell anything that is not brand new quality. You know, maybe it has a scratch on the back. I don't even know, but they will wipe it out. They will reinstall the operating system. If there was anything wrong with it, they'll fix it. So it's basically a brand new device. It might just be a year old or even less than that. Um, but somebody turned it in for some reason. They fixed it. They certified it as new, not new, but refurbished, but like new. And you can get it at a pretty solid discount. Um, one of the other places you can get cheap stuff and refurbish things is from Gazelle. And we'll, we'll put a link to that as well. Gazelle is also a place where you can sell your old devices. So if it's not that old, maybe a year or two old and you're just upgrading for some reason. Uh, I always, before I was on an upgrade program, I always sold my old devices to Gazelle. And they give you a pretty solid deal for it. You go through, just like you're on like... Kelly Blue Book or something. You go through and basically, what are your features? What what kind do you have? You know, what is all this stuff? What do you think the condition is? And then the first time I did it, I actually devalued the condition down from what I thought it was because it did have some scuffs and stuff on the back. And this was uh, this was an iPhone four or something like that. It was a long time ago. And they actually sent back a message saying, hey, we valued it at a little higher than you valued it at. So wow. here's money because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> they'll they'll do their own assessment. They just want to know they just want to be able to give you an accurate um, estimate on what you're getting back. And, and with Gazelle, actually, while we're talking about it, you actually have a couple different ways of getting money. They will just send you a check or if you want a little bit more money, they have partnerships with certain places like Amazon and other places where they give you a, basically a gift card to use on those in those places and they give you a little bit more money for that because the the retailers kicking in that extra money so but those are two places where you can look for refurbished stuff and again at gazelle you can actually sell them. actually you can sell your stuff back to apple now too but they won't uh they won't give you as good a price for it you know at school here we uh we have we buy hundreds of laptops at a time for the, we have one-to-one laptops amongst the uh, the students and so we mm-hmm. sell our laptops back when the leases expire the leases get bought out by a company it's not gazelle but it's another similar one and i'm sure that there's some kind of shady fly-by-night used equipment <laughs> dealers but ones like gazelle and unfortunately i'm drawing a blank on the name of the one that we use uh they they're pretty much above the board and uh and they'll do things like what just happened with you of uh or as you were just relaying that, you know, they said, oh, here, it's actually worth more than what <laughs> than what you thought it was worth. Uh, the yeah. ones that we deal with, and it's not the only company that's like this, they buy in bulk from schools and businesses that are upgrading. And that's an advantage to you as the end consumer, because they then get a lot of ones that are usually fairly lightly used. I mean, student ones might be heavily used, but uh, they get so many mm-hmm. of the same model that they're able to mix and match and put together new machines that are really like new. So in opposed to getting something, you know, if you're trying to buy used equipment off Craigslist or something, eBay maybe, that you're a little skeptical of, if you're doing it from one of these bigger companies, uh, 
you usually get pretty good equipment. And if there's a problem, you mm-hmm. usually have people that back up because they have their reputation at stake and, and, it, and they care about it. So it's, it's, you know, some people will shy away from used and refurb equipment because of that. But, uh, I think that's not necessarily the wisest place to start. Yeah. It really depends on where you're getting it from. And, uh, yeah, like you said, Paul, I mean, if they're going to check it out, then, then that's going to be worth getting it from them. Uh, I'm looking on Gazelle right now and they've got, uh, a, a ton of iPad mini fours on here for 16, uh, 16 gigabyte size. Actually, this isn't, is this the mini? Oh, this is the iPad four. Let me look at the mini four. So the iPad mini four, because I don't, I don't ever recommend getting the full size iPad for regular survey work, maybe for excavation work, but not survey work, but they've got two iPad mini fours on here, 128 gigabytes for one of them and 64 gigs for the other. And they're both about 320 bucks. Um, original price, $600. And these hmm. are Wi-Fi enabled. So yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty good deal. And like Paul said, they're certified, uh, refurbished. So, you know, you're not getting something off of eBay and you have no idea what, what condition it's in. Like Paul said, um, I would never buy electronics like this and be using the field off of Craigslist or eBay unless I was in a really, really sorry state. Like I really needed something fast. I needed like 50 tablets right now and they just didn't have a Gazelle or Apple. Um, and, and then I was going to get rid of them later on, but. Honestly, I'd probably just go buy a bunch of Amazon Fire tablets at this point for fifty bucks a piece, and then chuck them at the end of the project, but uh, or, or let people take them home. <laughs> One of the a two. Perk so. for your employees, huh? Exactly. Well, that's what I did at the end of my uh, my big China Lake project, where I had eight tablets out there. I actually had ten tablets, so I had some extras, and it was close to Christmas. The project was ending. What am I going to do with a bunch of tablets at home? So I just let everybody take them home as a gift. I gave them the box and the power cords and everything, and I said, "Here you go." I wiped them out set them to reset for them and said, it's all yours. Merry Christmas. So because we'd saved all the money, I mean, tons of money by the end of the first session, those tablets already paid for themselves. Mm -hmm. So eight months later, there was no, it was a no brainer, but, uh, okay. Well, that is the end of section one that went fast and we only talked about basically two things. So (laughs) (laughs) hopefully we cover a few more things in segment two, and then we've got a fun app of the day segment at the end and stick around for that app of day segment because my app works on anything except mobile devices. <laughs> so, so there you go. Um, I'll just leave you with that. So come back for second segment. In the meantime, listen to this uh, short ad about our member site. We've getting a lot of new members and I've, I've just cut a deal that I can't talk about right now, but we're going to get a lot more professional content coming on there in the next three to five months. A lot of really cool videos and things like that. So check it out at arcpodnet.com slash members. Back in a second. Network is supported by our listeners. You can become a supporting member by going to arcpodnet.com slash members and signing up. As a supporting member, you have access to high quality downloads of each show and a discount at our online store and access to show hosts on a members only Slack team. For professional members, we'll have training shows and other special content offered throughout the year. Once again, go to arcpodnet.com slash members to support the network and get some great extras and swag in the process. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. Okay, we are back on the Architect Podcast, episode 72, and we are talking about tech on a budget, budget technology, all kinds of cheap things that you can get and still stay 
relevant. <laughs> so uh, next thing on our list is, uh, and, and Paul, I think you wrote this down, used scientific equipment. And that's great because so many things we need, we don't need the brand new version. How many people out there have used the brand new latest and greatest Trimble GPS? Usually it's like five, six, seven years old. And you can find those for a pretty good price on places like eBay and stuff like that. When I just said, don't get your tech on eBay. But that's a good place to actually get those sorts of things. What do you think, Paul? Yeah, no, I, uh, I put this on the list because, you know, we keep on thinking about equipment in the the consumer space but of course as scientists and you know most archaeologists consider themselves at some level scientists uh we use a fair amount of scientific equipment and it's true there's a lot of equipment out there that you know somebody's upgraded or a lab has downsized or for whatever reason uh it goes you know on sale uh oftentimes on ebay so you know again all caveats uh (laughs) that apply. (laughs) But I keep on looking, Uh, you know, back in the day, I would go project to project as a surveyor. We'd written software, we had total stations. I look at, I look online. I mean, back then the total stations, Topcon GTS 3B was, was $10,000 maybe. I can't remember, but it was, it was, it was not a cheap piece of equipment. It was, if somebody wanted that for their own project, it was a major line item on that grant application. I look online now and I see these same ones, which are still entirely serviceable. They're, they're perfectly good. They, they measure at three or five arc seconds. Uh, they measure fairly quickly. These and then also a few later models. And so, yeah, it's, it's equipment that's pushing 15, 20 years, but it's generally equipment that was cared for and regularly maintained. And so what I've noticed that especially with the uh, the total stations, a lot of these are from Japanese companies, Pentaxes and Topcons and such. And a lot of them are being sold out of Japan. So what's happened is they've gone back there, been refurbished and uh, and now now being sold back. So if a total station like what I used to use is now a tenth of the price. It's around a thousand dollars. I keep on looking at these, going, mm. oh, I wish I had a thousand dollars to spare because <laughs> I would get one of these just to play with it, you know, for old times' sake, and maybe see if I can do a few side gigs on different archaeological projects around. But um, are there other kinds? Of, you mentioned GPS. Are there other kinds of equipment that you would possibly consider buying used as opposed to new? Yeah, and this kind of segues into the next item a little bit too. Um, there's drones. If you're getting into drones uh, for archaeology, the place to go is actually probably eBay because so many people get into these things because they're hot and new, and then they realize they either don't know how to do it, they don't know how to fly them, or they don't uh, they don't want to. They they realize that they'd have to get a license to use them for commercial purposes, or maybe it's a consumer drone and. They just got in trouble with the wife or the husband, whatever the case may be, and said, you spent how much? So now it's on eBay. And uh, and, and I think especially the higher end stuff, you're probably not going to find cheaper ones or would you want those on eBay. But I think drones, I was actually in the market to possibly sell one that I've got. And I was looking on eBay to see what they were going for. And my God, at originally $5,000 for a DJI Inspire Pro, uh, Inspire One Pro drone, which is what I've got. I mean, you can get packages on there. Sure, it's not in a fancy case, and and maybe it's got some scuff marks on it, but you can get that for $1,200, $1,500, and that's way off the retail price. Now, I will caution people with drones. 
you have to make sure a lot of times people, people get rid of something it's because they crash the crap out of it. So you want to make sure that there's some kind of guarantee. Maybe you can get on Skype with them and watch them fly it or something just to make sure it hovers and, and it can actually do things because if those motors are burned out or if the controllers burned out or if the batteries are crap, it's going to cost you hundreds of dollars to get that thing flying. And maybe it's worth it if you're saving three, $4,000. If you want to drop in new batteries and motors, maybe that's worth it for you. But if you want something that's out of the box, be very careful and make sure that it's not somebody who has, you know, a brand new seller or anything like that. You know, they've got some good reviews and maybe they have a good return policy. So, but I would suggest trying to get on Skype with them, uh, especially if you're going to do a buy it now or something and see if they'll actually fly it in front of you. If it's not flyable, then, you know, obviously it's going to be a huge problem. Drones really should start following the class that like cars do on eBay. You can sell cars on eBay, but they have a lot of restrictions and caveats because they're cars. But, uh, I don't know. Things that fly and stuff like that, it's really, really sketchy. But that's really the only thing besides that and Trimbles and Total Stations that I can think of that people would, would really pick up from a tech standpoint. I've got one for you. Um, we didn't put it on the list, but, you know, we were talking about photography just a couple episodes ago. Uh, cameras, if you're looking uh, at yeah. going into a DSLR and you've only been using uh, point and shoots on your project, <laughs> that's mm-hmm. a good way to get a good rebate on them. Uh, that's an excellent People point. generally take good care of their DSLRs and... Uh, and people who are into the photography generally upgrade them every few years as something newer mm-hmm. or fancier comes out. So you can get something that is a few years old, but it has been reasonably well uh, taken care of and uh, and is totally adequate for what you're going to use. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a good way to save money versus buying the new equipment. Uh, and then, you know, this applies, you kind of hinted, well, you didn't hint at it, you said it about the, uh, about the drones, you know, maybe you might want to consider getting new motors if the motors are burnt out or, you know, doing other repairs, any of this kind of equipment, uh, the, the, the photography equipment, the surveying equipment, mm-hmm. you know, you can, for a couple hundred dollars, get it fully reserviced, calibrated and all. Yeah. And so you you still, even if you get something that's not perfect, you can usually make it pretty much perfect uh, at still a substantial discount. And then you get the extra mm-hmm. peace of mind if you trust the service shop that, that did it, that uh, that you have something that has been cleaned, repaired, and calibrated by a professional, <laughs> you know, as opposed yeah. to taking somebody's word for it off the internet. And you know, what do you think about this, Paul? Because I don't know uh, much about this end of things from a photography standpoint, but what if you picked up, uh, you picked up a relatively decent, um, but not like super high end camera body on eBay and maybe it had some kind of crappy lens with it or something like that. How much of a, how much of a kind of cheapish SLR camera body can you make up for by actually buying a decent lens for it? So if you got a decent camera body for a good price and then you went out and spent some good money on a lens, how much will that help you or do you really need both components to be really solid? Well, with the camera body, you want to make sure that it hasn't been dropped, that anything is you know bent, dinged mm-hmm. out of out of uh, alignment. You also want to make sure that it doesn't have too many activations of the shutter because there there is a life. Mm-hmm. Uh, expectancy to them of depending on the camera body i think it's around 50,000 to 100,000 shots and i believe that that can be serviced once it starts getting a little funky but uh most of what's going to matter provide that you've got a camera that that has the controls that you want and has the resolution that you want right cuz uh if mm-hmm. you're dealing with a, a certain minimum resolution provide that you've got a camera like that provide you stay in one of the major lines like nikon or canon any of the lenses that you buy they're going to be expensive, but you're going to be able to, to move those to the next camera, right? right? So if you spend 500 or 1000 or $1,500 on a very good lens, 
that's not sunk cost on that camera body. That <laughs> lens sticks with you to the next camera body you get and sticks yeah. with you to the next camera. And that's something that you know, photographers have known forever. They get they get very deeply invested in a uh, in a monetary sense in their their lenses <laughs> and their glass. You know, so you know you start building out mm-hmm. your collection on Nikon, and then twenty years later you're still shooting Nikon because. Yeah, you spent $30,000 in lenses on those. <laughs> and yeah, you've upgraded your camera body five times yeah. then. But uh, but those lenses, some of them are still originals. Uh, so anyhow, the, to answer your question, provided that the camera body is in good shape, the lenses are really, I think, where you're going to get the biggest bang for your buck. But you're not okay. going to get as good discounts there. You can still look for used lenses. Um, but the lenses also tend to be the part that take the brunt of the, uh, the damage when, uh, when things happen to them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you want to be more wary about that. Okay. Well, that's good. Cause that's, that's one thing I was looking at because, uh, I figured you would be able to find budget camera bodies, but actually good ones on things like eBay and Craigslist and stuff like that, because photographers, at least all the ones I've known are tend to be a little bit kind of gear junkies as well. I mean, they get their favorites, mm-hmm. but if they're going to upgrade, it's upgrade, it's going to be the camera body and they're getting rid of like a D seven, you know, in favor of, you know, something, something more expensive that comes along and they really just need to, to make some money on it. You're probably going to get a pretty good price on that when they do upgrade that body. So, um, so yeah, that, that's a really cool thing to, to think about buying on there. I, I totally support that. One other thing that that burns out on on cameras uh, are the batteries. So, you know, factor in buying a a bunch of new batteries and maybe chargers Mm -hmm. because you may not be getting the proper charger when you buy that used body. Uh, Mm -hmm. But usually they're not terribly expensive, but it is something that's definitely going to affect your ability to use that, that camera, especially in the field. So, you know, it's worth considering. All right. Well, we talked about drones a little bit earlier. I wanted to toss in this one just because it's brand new and some people might be thinking about it for, uh, you know, for field use because it is, it is new and it's, it's super tiny, but it's the Mavic Air drone. I'm actually not even sure if it's available for order. Oh yeah, it must be because I've seen previews of it, uh, reviews of it on YouTube. So, but anyway, this thing is no bigger than like your average smartphone when it's all folded up. I mean, you can literally put it in its little pocket in its little case and put it in your coat pocket or something and put the radio in your other coat pocket and go to town on it. But, um, I will just make a couple cautionary notes to that for people who are thinking about it. I think this would be a great drone for chucking up in the air and doing some really quick overhead shots of features, maybe even sight overviews. It's, it's going to be, it's going to have a hard time fighting the wind, but the, the gimbal stabilization on these cameras from DJI is so fantastic that it probably doesn't matter. You're only going to be up in the air for a few minutes anyway. So it'll be up there long enough to take a few um, stable shots, even though the drone might be rocking and rolling up there. The shots will still be stable and you can get a couple shots and bring it back down and, and go to town with that. But the couple cautionary notes I would have are a, it's really, really, really tiny. So if you're working in a very dusty environment, that dust is going to get all over inside there and, and be way worse for that thing than on a larger drone where it'd be easier to clean. Also, this drone, while $800 is not really on the budget list, but it's budget for the quality of camera and flight characteristics that it has. The one big downside from the Mavic Air versus the Mavic Pro, which I would actually suggest, which is closer to $1,000 to $1,200, depending on where you get it, is the radio. The It's a Wi-Fi drone, the Mavic Air is. So it's it uses a Wi-Fi transmitter to actually send signals to that drone. And it's anybody that knows anything about Wi-Fi versus the 2.4 gigahertz uh, radio signal that the other drones use is the range. Now, with this little drone, you're probably not going to fly it 
much beyond your visual sight range. In fact, it's illegal to do so. But even if you tried it, you're probably not going to fly it much beyond that. And you wouldn't be able to anyway because Wi-Fi is severely limited on range. With radio, with the Mavic Air, there's tests on YouTube. They're, they're going up to eight miles away <laughs> with this drone. Wow. It, in Yeah, in clear conditions, up high, you know, where, the, where nothing's obstructing your line of sight to the drone. People are going eight miles with this thing because that's the range of that radio with a full set of batteries and, and just ready to go. So... Anyway, I just wanted to say, you know, if you're thinking about the Mavic Air as a budget entry into the the prosumer drone space, I'd probably just save a couple extra hundred dollars and go for the Mavic Pro. Um, if you're just going to mess around with it, then fine. But if you're going to use it for work, I, I would I would probably suggest the Pro. It's not that much bigger and it's a way better drone and you can still throw it in your backpack, you know, in its little case. And it's kind of amazing uh, what it can do. So so that's my little thing on the drone. That air is a really sexy little bit of kit, though. I was watching some oh, YouTube it's videos. Pretty nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely sweet. I mean, I want to buy it just to play with it, but I don't think it has much applicability for me from a work <laughs> standpoint. That, don't tell that to my accountant, though, because if I do get one, it'll be on the Amex. But um, anyway, <laughs> the uh, so let's move on to some software things. Yeah, let's this, shift uh, gears a little here. So um, I put down on the on our checklist here of things to discuss uh, free open source software. I mean, obviously, at this point, twenty eighteen now, everybody knows about these kinds of this whole class of software. Everybody knows that uh, that there are a lot of people using it. It's especially in scientific communities, increasing numbers of people are more comfortable using uh, free and open source than other paid software versus you know five years ago, ten years ago. It's 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 a a solid trend. Um, so I just wanted to mention a couple different programs uh, in case people aren't aware of them uh, that you can use as, as replacements quite easily for more expensive commercial software. Um, start because I think everybody knows about this one already is the GIMP instead of Photoshop. Have you had any use uh, for either of those? No, not really. Honestly, uh, I just haven't used it much. I've seen GIMP a lot though. I know people that use it. Mm-hmm. No, I uh, I'd used it a little bit years ago, and uh, and it was very clunky at the time. Uh, but it's you know it's not as fully featured as Photoshop. But for most of what people do, unless they're real Photoshop junkies, uh, real Photoshop jockeys, they uh, the the <laughs> GIMP software is going to be entirely adequate. If what you're doing is fixing up some uh, some photos, uh, resizing things for the web, that sort of stuff, which is you know probably what most people are doing most of the time with their uh, their photo editing software it's worth taking a look at gimp instead of shelling out the big bucks for for photoshop uh, on the same same kind of idea is you know a lot of people use illustrator for their illustrations obviously another one worth looking at uh, that is probably a closer replacement in my opinion for illustrator now again i'm i'm better at Photoshop than I am at Illustrator, but, uh, mm-hmm. but Inkscape is another, is free and open source software that, uh, that is really a strong contender for illustration software. So if you're tracing things, redrawing them, whatever, especially for publications, uh, touching up maps, whatever the, the kind of vector artwork you're doing, uh, definitely take a look at In- Inkscape and we'll put all these, uh, these links to these programs in the show notes. Mm-hmm. And lastly, the one that I really wanted to highlight, because a lot of people aren't aware of this, but it's uh, it's also very good, is called LibreOffice. Uh, a f- few years ago, it was OpenOffice, and then OpenOffice got bought out, I believe, by Oracle. 
uh, oh, or Open Office, excuse me, was a Sun project. And when Sun got bought mm. by Oracle, there was some ambiguity as to what was happening, not with the project, but with the licensing. And so most of the developers of OpenOffice jumped ship, created a new product called LibreOffice, which was started out as being a fork of OpenOffice. So it was compatible with all the files, identical in its interface and everything, just branding change, basically, uh, yeah. in order to keep it compliant with the licensing. And anyhow, so what it is, it's a, it's a full Microsoft Office replacement. It's got a drawing program. It's got a spreadsheet program. It's got a word processing program. Uh, it has a database program uh, all in one, and uh, and it works quite well. Um, hmm. I use it I on my personal machine. Uh, actually, I do have Word now because of a project I'm working on, but, uh, but I don't use Excel. I use LibreOffice Sheets, and it never lets me down. Actually, it's more reliable for me getting CSV data into LibreOffice Sheets than it is getting into Microsoft Excel. Uh, I've got more options and more configurability and fewer hiccups. So I'm always right. happy to use LibreOffice instead of Excel. So okay. that's another one for people to look at if they're not already aware of it. Do you have anything? Yeah, um, along those lines. And I, I've talked about uh, the app Graphic back on episode 22 of Archaeotech, and we'll link mm. that into the show notes. But I use graphic, my God, for like 99% of my graphic design sort of things. And even like some sort of illustrator activities as well, I use graphic for. And what it is, is it's a vector drawing application. Uh, again, sorry about this, but it's only iOS and Mac OS. <laughs> so, uh, but if you have those things, you know, it connects through iCloud or Dropbox or whatever, and you can start on one thing and work on another. A lot of times when I have an idea for a graphic for one of my companies or something I'm working on, I'll start it on my iPhone, but that's not the best place to do graphic design. And, uh, and then I'll maybe continue it on my iPad if that's around, or I'll start it on my iPad and then I'll continue it on the computer and then and then pick that back up. But um, I've used graphic extensively to design business cards, website images. Um, I've traced features and projectile points and, uh, you know, like like uh, profiles and cross sections of, of units and stuff like that. I've done all that in graphic. Just take the picture right in there and then drop it on it. Now, graphic isn't free like some of Paul's programs. But when you look at Illustrator and some other stuff, it's pretty affordable because it's like $10 for iOS, which will work on all your devices. And I think it's 30 or $40 for the desktop version. And uh, that's still a, a pretty decent price for a one-time purchase for such a powerful yet simple application. So you can't recommend that enough. Yeah. Versus the full price of going with, uh, with Adobe's <laughs> creative suite, oh, which yeah. is now of course yeah. a mem uh, a, um, a subscription license. So you get the joy yeah. of paying for it <laughs> repeatedly. Yeah, I know. When I took this audio engineering course last fall, they got themselves set up as an actual like school with Adobe. So mm -hmm. I, I got to get rid of my two subscriptions I was paying for. I was paying for Premiere and Audition at 20 bucks a piece. So 40 bucks a month I was paying for those two products. <laughs> and then, uh, and then as a student of the podcast engineering school, I got one year of Adobe products, all their products for $20 a month. So I was like, I'm doing that. <laughs> so, well, that actually brings up another thing. If they're, if you're wedded to particular software, you are that, that Photoshop jockey, uh, see if there's mm -hmm. any way you can get some of these rebates. Cause if you've got uh, uh, an educational discount that you can make use of, you can often get really steeply discounted prices on these things. Oh yeah. So since we're talking about tech on a budget, you know, 
definitely explore those avenues. Right. And we're running a little long on this, but I, I think, as usual, our episode of the day segment will be a little shorter. So, Paul, why don't you round out our list and talk about GitHub? Okay. So, GitHub, uh, for those of us, for those of you who don't know, it is a major site for hosting, especially repositories of code. So, different projects, especially like these free and open source software projects that we were mentioning, um, will store their code there, and different people can go in, check out the code, contribute back up into the stream. And so, it's a, it's this really powerful, very user friendly. It's the big heavy hitter for distributed source code uh, control software out there. People have been using it in other ways too, and Git promotes this. So it's not like hacking, uh, excuse me, GitHub promotes this. It's not like mm-hmm. hacking GitHub in order to do something a little funny with it. But if you have web pages that are made up of, or a website that's made up of static pages or of markdown pages, which is a particular programming um, markup language rather, you can host those on GitHub. And so this is a way to get uh, a web presence for free without some of the restrictions you might have in other places where you have tied into certain advertising and so on. You can put them directly up on your GitHub. And the other part that I just wanted to mention very briefly here applies less probably to CRM, uh, but I've seen it actually in use in academic archaeology is hosting one's data on GitHub. And so there's a project that I'm aware of that... uh, I was talking to the uh, the originator of the project, and he's got measurements of Roman amphitheaters <laughs> as a CSV on his GitHub project. And so nice. if you want to work with that, you just point your, your R, which is a statistical processing program, uh, at that GitHub repository. And if you have things to add or change, it's there on GitHub. It's source controlled. Uh, and so it's a really cool way of distributing your data as well. Um, mm. So it's it's something, you know, well beyond what we can talk about in this. It might be worth an episode in itself. But I did just want to point out to this, if you need web presence, either for static pages for your project or for hosting data, take a look at what GitHub has to offer because it might be something right up your alley. It might be something quite useful to you. Nice. That's awesome. I like it. Okay. Well, that rounds out this section. Uh, I'll mention this again, but we are going to talk about some uh, some updates. If you're an iOS user uh, or a uh, Mac OS user or even Windows 10, we're going to talk about some of the recent operating system upgrades, but that is going into our bonus content for members of the Archaeology Podcast Network. So again, check out uh, arcpodnet.com forward slash members to become a member today and get access to all this awesome bonus content. We'll be back in just a second with our app of the day segment. The Archaeology Podcast Network has partnered with T Public to bring you some awesome gear that looks good, promotes archaeology, and puts a few pennies in our pockets so you can get free podcasts. Check out our designs at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop. Okay, we're back with Archaeotech episode 72, and this is our app of the day segment. And I'll just kick this off uh, because I'm pretty excited to talk about this, even though I had a major 3D printer fail this morning. And if you follow me on Instagram or Facebook, you would have seen that. But I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, but I've been using the 3D printer here at the Reno Collective because I went through a class taught by one of the members here who's really into it um, about first how to use the software to get things into the 3D printer. So you get you first have to know that. But uh, anyway, the software that he taught us to use is free and open source, and it's called Tinkercad. And we'll have links to this in the show notes. Tinkercad works in a browser. It's not an app that you download. It works in a browser. You sign up for a little account, which just so they can have all your data. And then... Uh, 
<laughs> which we've which we've talked about on a previous episode of the Architect Podcast. But um, anyway, so you give them all your data, and then you sign up for an account, and there there really is no learning program in there. There's I tried messing with it before I was shown how to do some things, but once I took the little class here, uh, it became pretty obvious. And then of course I found there's plenty of YouTube videos and stuff for how to use Tinkercad. But basically, one of the things you need to know when designing 3D materials, and this isn't using something you scanned in or anything like that. This is creating something from new. But you can make any shape that you want by doing just a handful of things. First, start with a shape. Second, add a new shape to that shape and either make that shape an addition or a whole, basically. You make it something you're adding to or something you're taking away from. Like, for example, if you wanted to make uh, a pipe, you, you would start with a cylinder and then you drag in another cylinder that's slightly smaller on top of that cylinder turn that cylinder transparent, basically, by calling it a hole in Tinkercad's parlance, and then you group those objects together, and when you group them together, that hole goes away, and it takes the material with it. And so you and you end up with a pipe, basically, you know, a hollow uh, cylinder. Um, you can create all kinds of things when you start realizing how to do that, and just just adding and taking away material and creating different things, and then using the ruler for very precise measurements down to the tenth of a millimeter, um, you can get down to what you need to do if you're going to do this to any degree of accuracy. So um, go play around with Tinkercad. Uh, check it out. If you the, One of the nice things about Tinkercad is if you don't have access to a 3D printer, I haven't done this because I have access to a 3D printer, but you can actually order your 3D print through Tinkercad. Like you can just hit order my 3D print, and I don't know how much it costs or who they go through or how long it takes to get there. And it's and it's a little sketchy because if you're doing something that's that you've designed, it might not work out. <laughs> I don't know what you're going to get back, but um, but one of the things you can do to just start playing with it is go on Thingiverse. Thingiverse is a really cool website where people have uploaded hundreds and hundreds and thousands of 3D printed designs. And a lot of times I've thought, wow, I could 3D print this. And first thing I went to Thingiverse and somebody's already got the design for it. So then I'll take that, drop it into Tinkercad, do any modifications I need to do to it, additions or subtractions or resizing. And then you export that as a uh, as an STL file. And the, the printers we have here are the Ultimaker uh Ultimaker 2.0 plus or something like that, whatever they are. But anyway, I dropped that into the Ultimaker software called Cura, and then that basically sets it up for 3D printing. Uh, you go in and uh, make all your adjustments for how fast, how thick, uh, you know, all these different things, what type of material you have. It'll give you the approximate time it's going to take to print that. Save that to an SD card, drop it in a printer, and go to town. Um, I did that last night with a print, and I, I was starting to get more efficient with my prints. I had three things on the glass, and the first two were really small. The second one was 18 by 18 centimeters, so it was 18 centimeters tall. And it was a stand, basically, for my iMac uh, Thunderbolt display. And somewhere around about 15 centimeters high, all hell broke loose, probably around 3 o'clock this morning because it was an 18-hour print. And it just, when I got in this morning, it looked like the entire inside of the printer was filled with um, white angel hair pasta. <laughs> like oh, it no. knocked the print sideways off its kilter. And then it turns out one of the uh, one of the motors broke and the guy that owns it, he said it was, it's been getting ready, getting ready to fail. So he's not surprised. But uh, one of the motors broke and then it just spit plastic everywhere. <laughs> it was just, it was amazing the mess that the thing made. But it was all contained right inside the printer and it was actually kind of beautiful. And uh, it looked like, it looked like something that was about to attack the Enterprise though. That's what I got to say. It was, uh, it <laughs> looked like some alien space being and it was really strange, but it was fun. No, I'm glad that you're t- mentioning Tinkercad. The timing is, uh, is really, uh, interesting to me because I only <laughs> learned of Tinkercad last week. 
Uh, and I learned oh, nice. about it from one of the teachers here, one of the comp sci teachers who does a lot of work with, uh, with fabbing. And uh, we had this epic meeting with <laughs> the comp sci teachers, the robotics teachers, uh, a couple people from the IT department, myself and, the, uh, and our web devs, uh, some art teachers, because there was this whole, there's this recognition amongst the, the comp sci teachers that a lot of different people are using the laser cutter, the, um, the vinyl cutter, the 3D printers. We've got them scattered around and everybody's using their own different tool set. And we want to kind of come up with some overarching reason for having them. <laughs> and then being able to use it well because we're a school, right? And so we we're mm-hmm. K through twelve. So we wanted to be able to bring it in at different developmentally appropriate stages using tool sets that then one would kind of lead into the next. And so this teacher that was talking to me brought up Tinkercad because we have a project in the sixth grade where for a number of years, um, actually this goes back decades, they build, they study ancient Greece. And then part of the project is they have, uh, it's this is done within math, actually. They, they take plans and they learn about scale and they build cardboard models. Hmm. A few years back, we had some kids start making 3D models with SketchUp. Okay. And so last year... Uh, as an expansion on this, the, the cardboard models, they all come out at different scales. The 3D SketchUp models, it's whatever it's printed out as, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So last year, one of the teachers had this great idea of doing the columns 3D printed to a set scale. And so then mm-hmm. in, in amongst the display of the 20 or however many cardboard models, there would be a display of little figurines with <laughs> the columns designed and printed by the kids in SketchUp uh, to the right scale. Mm-hmm. So that way we could see that you know some temples are huge and some are quite small by comparison. Uh, nice. And so that worked really well, but SketchUp was actually a weak tool for that because of that step between creating the model in the in the computer software and getting it out into the real world through the 3d printer so the teacher said well tinkercad solves that quite easily for us mm-hmm. it's it's really easy to uh to to print from a tinkercad model that's what it's made for but then it also has another thing for us in terms of the developmental stages as we teach kids about different kinds of software and give them different concepts to, to get their brains around is that, uh, it's by, um, Autodesk. Yeah. It's by Autodesk. Yeah. So a lot of the concepts, a lot of the metaphors in the program actually go nicely into fusion 360, which is their higher end 3d modeling product. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that way, you know, you teach the younger kids how to, how to model in Tinkercad. And then when they get to a certain point, you can move them up to Fusion 360. And clearly that's what Autodesk was thinking. Uh, but it works really well for us as a school. So it's interesting that you would bring this up right after I had all these conversations <laughs> over the last week about the same set of software. And the Fusion 360, my coworker, uh, trying to learn it the other day, he, uh, he had a, a something very specific. His, his bed in his new apartment was butting up against the wall in a way that was damaging the wall. So he, to teach himself Fusion 360, built these little brackets that would bolt onto the legs of the bed. 
and then keep it a certain distance from the wall. And so he bid, built those out in, in Fusion 360 and then 3D printed them. They came out perfectly. It was really, really cool. But so it's, it's this, you know, one tool leading into the next, which is really uh, an interesting thing. And again, because Tinkercad is free, it's deployed on the web, uh, it's worth playing with. I mean, it's worth trying yeah. to, to, to use to dip one's toes into that world. Yeah, I will say I tried to modify one of my designs using the uh, just going to Tinkercad in a browser on my phone and uh, it failed miserably. Tinkercad is not mobile optimized. <laughs> so <laughs> it might it might work on a larger tablet or something like that, but it just didn't resize everything and I couldn't hit the right buttons and stuff. It just wasn't mobile optimized. So use it on your desktop or laptop or something like that or maybe an iPad Pro if you have it. Again, I haven't tried it on there, but uh, it's really not optimized for that interface um so yeah uh i i'm glad i'm glad we both like it because it's it's such an amazing program it's really fun just to play with it too especially dropping something in that somebody else made from thingiverse just just import it and uh and then and then start playing with that start messing around with that design and and all that stuff is is free and open source so you can do whatever you want to it and uh and print it at your heart's content so it's pretty cool it's pretty fun when you get when you get into that stuff uh, i took that one class and i've been printing stuff you know several times a week just messing around with different things looking at concepts and actually at least one of the things i'm doing is uh, a product i might actually try to bring to market and uh and and sell and it's something i've been toying with and kind of refining it and part of my failed print this morning that actually printed successfully because it was small <laughs> near the bottom before it went off the rails uh literally and uh and it, and it actually worked so more on that later when i get it to come out but um it's 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 not just a fun toy to play with but you can actually learn some stuff and do some really cool things with them so all right paul you have another app that you want to talk about yeah i have another one it's called pro movie recorder and um this one, uh, if you listen to our episode a few episodes ago about photography, you mm-hmm. had mentioned ProCam uh, during the App yeah. of the Day segment. And I mentioned very briefly uh, Camera Plus, which is a similar sort of program that uh, that I'd used in the past. And both of those are ways of getting a lot more configurability, especially in the lines of what pro photographers want with uh, with uh, um, aperture and uh, can't actually do shutter speed on these because they have mm-hmm. fixed shutters, but ISO sensitivity, white balance, and so on to, to improve the quality of your photographs. And that works for still photographs. So what I'm looking at here, um, I had a video project that I'm considering doing. And so I found a piece of software called Pro Movie Recorder. This is iOS only. It's free, but it gives you an ugly watermark. So if you want that <laughs> watermark gone, the, the ransom for it is $2.99, which is entirely <laughs> fair. And this is basically the same kind of software, but for video. So as opposed to going to your ca- your phone's camera app and flipping over to the video tab and just shooting whatever it's giving you, um, this allows you to you know put an overlay on it so you can see the rule of thirds, uh, you can see a horizon line, and then adjust everything else that you might possibly want to. So on my phone, again, it's an older phone. I'm 720p here on the uh, on the front facing cam, on the uh, the FaceTime cam, and um, mm-hmm. I can do uh, 1080p or 720p. I can change the shutter speed. I can change the ISO, the white balance, zoom if I want to. And again, it's still a digital zoom, so I don't want to do that. Uh, all the displays of all these different things that you as a, as a videographer might want right there, handily presented to you in a very comprehensive, but not cluttered or unintuitive interface. So, uh, if you're looking at doing a video project, I would 
really give this one some some strong consideration. I provide that you're on iOS because it gives you, uh, you know, if you're, I've never done a whole lot of video, so I don't know what a regular video shooter would would think of it, but I have done a lot of still photography and looking at this, it absolutely makes sense to me. Uh, and it looks like something I will definitely use as opposed to the built-in camera. So very short and sweet, but uh, just so that people are aware that this class of software is out there as well uh, and gives you then much more control. And control is something that we as uh, as tech geeks often crave. That, that might be something to consider too as we talk about tech on a budget is maybe the tech is actually the thing you spend decent money on. Get an awesome tablet, get an awesome phone, something like that. Because a lot of the software and things you'll use to go along with that, man, you can find some really good stuff for cheap or 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 free online. Like this $2.99 to, to add a lot more functionality to your camera on your phone is kind of amazing. Um, it, well, it's kind of amazing that Apple doesn't put that in natively, but it's also kind of amazing that they allow other people to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, I was mentioning that, that Amazon Fire tablet earlier that Apple does not allow you to uh, does not allow the developers to access the uh, the the Wi-Fi card. Well, mm-hmm. they do allow access to the camera in ways that they don't allow access to other parts of the hardware, and right. that works to the benefit of the end consumer like you and me. And tech mm-hmm. on a budget two ninety nine for a quite good ten eighty p camera. Uh, you know, if I had a better phone, it would be a four K camera. <laughs> that's that's, that's a steal. Yeah. Yeah, that is a steal. That's pretty nice. So, all right. Well, that is going to end our, our app of the day segment and episode 72 of the Archaeotech podcast. As I mentioned, if you are a member of the uh, Archaeology Podcast Network, then go check out the bonus content for this episode where we talk about some of the latest iOS, watchOS, and desktop and Windows 10 releases of their software. So we can tell you whether or not you can actually do your upgrade. If you listen to this in the future, you're probably way beyond this, but that's why we're putting it in bonus content because it's just for people that want to hear it now and they're going to go to it now and they can use it now. So because in five minutes, they'll release another update. (laughs) This will be irrelevant. So that's where we're sitting. All right. So thanks for listening to this. Thanks, Paul, for, uh, for all the good advice. Thanks, Chris. It was fun. All right. And we'll talk to you guys next time. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.archpodnet.com slash Archaeotech. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at archpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is licensed free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com members for more info.